Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm here with Danny Moses. Guy Adami is not with us. He is at Georgetown University's convocation today, his middle child, Lily, a very special child. She's actually been an intern for Risk Reversal Media for the last, what, year or so, Danny? Yep. So she is graduating, and she is a fine soul. Congrats to Lily. So Guy's not here with us, but Danny and I did sit down with Guy Adami, and he was our guest off the tape this week, so stick around for that. Danny and I are going to do a, like a hot 30 here. Is that what we're going to call it, Danny, on the markets? I missed last week. I told you what was going to happen when I was away. You were very active on our group chat over the last week. You did tell us the week before last that you're going away for the week, and when you go away, bad things happen in the markets. All the time. So, All right. So what was it like being distant shores, golfing some of the most amazing golf courses on the planet? I would say. And watching the market meltdown. Yeah, that was a three-year trip in the making that got canceled twice for COVID with college buddies. So it was great. But it was really interesting because you play in the morning and it's the middle of the night here, finish up, and then you see the markets open. But watching from a distance, it actually provided a lot more clarity than it did. It's not about just every minute grinding and trying to figure things out. All right, but this is a really important point, and we talk about this, I think, on the podcast a lot. We are conditioned for 25 years. I've been staring at FactSet and Bloomberg machines every tick of almost every day that the market is open, and we obsess over things that most investors just never think about. Do you like those periods of clarity? Yeah, I like the periods of clarity because bigger picture here, I think things are in motion. We can talk about that. So all this other stuff right now I feel is just noise. That's not to say there's not opportunities always in our day on the long and short side, but of course, but since we started this podcast in January of 2021, we've actually not been focused on the thing called the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. We've been focused on all of the components, all the parts, all the inputs that make up what the market mind is in a way. And I think that's been a really fun exercise for us once a week or twice a week saying, okay, the S&P last week was like new high, new high and no big drawdown. But we're like, oh my goodness, look over here, look under the surface, what's going on. We think that's not going to be particularly great at some point. Yeah, and I think this whole obsession with hitting the 20% mark that's called a bear mark in the S&P, which every newsroom is now lined up at 3,837. Hey, just checking. Where are we, Jimmy? Well, 3,872. Okay, just let me know if we get there. We got to send that red headline out. So I think that noise, it's almost going to be a relief 
rally almost if it does hit that level? No doubt. The S&P at the lows was down 20%. The NASDAQ at its lows last Thursday was down 30%. I don't think any of us think that's it. There's no V bottoms this time. The whole BTFD, that thing is gone. And it's gone because this time around, and you've been laying it out, rates have been going higher. And the Fed can't pivot right now because of the worry of runaway inflation. I want to mention that in a second, but you brought up a great point. And when I was away, I was already clear on this, or I thought I had clarity on this. It's the Fed. What are we doing? Don't fight the Fed when they're easing and printing, and don't fight them when they're not. And it's that simple. We haven't even started quantitative tightening. It's going to start on June 1st. You won't see an impact that day. And maybe you get a rally on June 1st because treasuries didn't go out 20 basis points or whatever. We have yet to begin. He's only gone 75 basis points, right? It's been 25 and 50 at this point. And so the things that work their way into financial instruments, the thing you are seeing credit spreads wider, continuously wider. You are finally seeing discipline and credit selection or stock selection start to occur. And that's healthy. So I feel like if you want to say, hey, Danny, where are we in the cycle? I think we're in the third or fourth inning of this correction or just reset. And we can go from the fourth inning to the eighth inning in a matter of weeks or months quickly, but we're there. It's beginning. And it's a little piece of, like we talk about the year 2000, 99, 2000, 2001. It still feels the most like that to me. But I do believe, and I said this a couple of times, we are still dealing with the hangover of the financial crisis. And what we insulated ourselves from and cushioned ourselves from with all these Fed programs, we are now going to feel it. And we're starting to feel it. And that, to me, we're early in that. Here's a theme that we've been hitting on, I think, for a couple months right now. If you think about what a PE is, is a price to earnings. So what have we had in 2022? We've had the price come down of many stocks of the market. We haven't had the earnings come down. And I think this is why this week was a really important week because we are on tag ends of S&P 500 calendar Q1 2022 earnings. So we just got the retailers. And when you think about, we heard some disappointing stuff from Amazon, from Netflix. There were some other companies. JP Morgan had some cost pressures and stuff like that. But there was nothing there that caused market strategists to really wholesale take down their 2022 earnings estimates. You agree with that, right? Piecemeal, stock by stock. What happened with Walmart and Target this week just punched in the face strategists or analysts or whatever that they have to do this now, correct? I think taking multiples down versus taking numbers down, and we talked about this before, we're already in May. We're going to get to the middle of the third quarter here, and we're going to shift to 2023. All of a sudden, if people start to feel like, all right, we all got the message. Fed seems like they're going to overshoot here. They're probably done. Let's focus on 23, and let's put a multiple on that. They're going to at some point wash 22 away. If people want it, the bullish head would you say. You got a mulligan at this point. I mean, the market's down, and we haven't had that bloodletting yet as far as estimates. But that's the thing. The earnings are the thing that have to capitulate. Here's the funny thing about the market. Every time the S&P is up, happened while I was away. When it was up last Friday, and then we came into Monday, it was kind of flat, and then Powell was speaking on Tuesday. I feel like every time the market's up, it's a green light for Powell to be. He has never been this bold in his comments that he made. Let me give you a couple of quotes from that. It was the Wall Street Journal- there could be some pain involved, quote from him. I think we are in the world of firsts. Well, I'm glad we could be his lab rats. Restoring price ability is an unconditional need. It is something we have to do. He actually talked about not even looking at the unemployment rate anymore. He thinks it's miscalculated. He just said, we are going for price stability and that's it. So we are June 15th, we're going 50. So from this point till June 15th, we have the quantitative tightening starting and all this stuff. We're going to be in this limbo period. But Dan, to your point, in the middle of all this, Walmart reports, and let me just say, because I'm always forced to pick longs. Of course, I chose Walmart and it had a nice write-up. And it's now It was working for months. It undid all its work in two days, okay? The Walmart, to me, was striking. Here's why. Doug McMillan's a good CEO. This is a big company. They, I mean, the largest employer, they're huge. They were caught off guard. 
And what they were caught off guard was they get the consumer into the store and they know they have the lowest price food. So the consumer normally goes in and they buy food and they buy other things. Well, the food inflation, which is probably the lowest margin business for Walmart, took up everything. It took up the cart, so to speak. So they were left with inventory, left with other things. Now, they'll sell this stuff through eventually. They made the sales number, but their margins got killed because they sold lower margin stuff. And he started to say things like, listen, our labor costs are starting to hurt us because we had to do that with Omicron, but that should start to abate in time. He goes, we'll work through this inventory, but you know what? Our earnings are going to be flat. And that would be, I think, $6.40. This was first quarter 23, they reported, because they're on the off quarter. So the 23 number is 640. Listen, 18 times, if you're looking for a stock and say, hey, Danny, what do I want to own when the Fed is done? Or what would make the Fed would be done would be inflation comes down. I want to own Walmart. He also said, because he has Sam's Club and everything, he also said that people are buying private label products, right? They're not buying the name brands anymore. Name like Kirkland, I haven't looked at. But point is that there is a massive consumer shift going on. And the answer is, yes, this is the quickest kind of impact I've seen in a cycle occur hitting the consumer. And we're starting to see the impact of it. Target gave it to us, Home Depot. Well, here's what's really important about this, because if you think about Target, it had a 25% one-day gap. It's down a little more than 40% from its all-time highs made in November. And this is a stock that trades right now, if you're looking at the estimates that have just probably been adjusted lower because of the guidance that they gave, it's trading at like 10, 11 times earnings. Right. So you're going to keep selling a stock like this, trading at 11 times earnings, that to your point, the wage stuff, a lot of the supply chain issues, the inventory stuff, that'll fix itself. The consumer stuff is really interesting. So Brian Cornell, the CEO of this company, I think was widely thought of as a great executive, a great CEO. I think he scared the shit out of a lot of CEOs, a lot of analysts, a lot of strategists yesterday when he was on CNBC in the morning. And he literally, he's trying to explain away how they were just not able to forecast some of these things about their business. They're getting it on both ways. They're getting inflation, they're getting it in the supply chain, but they're also getting it from changing consumer trends. Here's the one thing that made me kind of jump out of my seat. He's like, well, consumers are trading down from some of those bigger ticket items that are higher margins and they're buying a lot of luggage. Well, here's the thing, dude. I don't buy it because I look at Expedia trading at 52-week lows down 40%. I look at Airbnb trading at 52-week lows. So if he's trying to explain away, the consumer's still good. They're just changing their buying pattern. 100%. And listen, fuel costs were impacting Walmart, not the consumer, because they have to ship things. So it hit them. And to your point, we talked about this for the last year. Two choices on inflation as a company. You can eat it or you can pass it on. Walmart went out of the way on that conference call because I read through the transcript. And by the way, I'm telling people, if you get time on a weekend, and this is serious, if you really care about a company you want to learn, go read the earnings transcripts. Don't listen to research reports. Go read it for yourself. You can pick up a lot of stuff. Anyway, he said, just remember, our number one goal at Walmart is to serve the U.S. consumer. And when he says U.S. consumer, he means blue-collar, lower-middle-class consumer. And that's their mission. He said that's our mission. So my point is that they don't want to gouge the consumer in groceries. They don't want to do because long-term, that'll hurt them anyway. But fact of the matter is they can either eat it or pass it on. And they decided to eat it, and they're probably going to pass it on now a little bit. So we have yet to see a Walmart and a Target potentially passing on these increases to the consumer. But the consumer is reacting quickly, and their wallets are shrinking. Just to put a little bow on this conversation, we're going to move on from this. Okay, so Amazon last month. Gap down 14% after its earnings report. That was disappointing. And there were definitely some concerning consumer trends in that as far as North American retail. So that was a $100 billion gap. So then earlier this week, Walmart had 11% gap lower and then followed through. I think it's been down 5 or 6%. So you do that math, it's right now a $330 billion market cap company. So that's close to $50 billion. And then Target, which is now $70 billion, gap down 25% yesterday. And now it's down another 5%. 
If you are not paying attention and you are not extrapolating this to other consumer-sensitive names, and I'll tell you, this is one of the reasons why right now the market, as we're taping this Thursday into the close, is down, I don't know, 30 bips, the S&P 500, the NASDAQ's down 60. Let me tell you what's down the most. Apple Computer is down 2.7%. It's breaking down below that 140 level or whatever. So I think it's starting to happen here, people. I think you're going to see analysts starting to move their feet and start really lowering numbers. And so, again, going back to current consensus is for S&P earnings this year to be up 10%. That's not happening. We've been saying that months now, okay? So if you put a 17 times P.E. multiple on the S&P earnings that is maybe at best 5% year over year, that's where you get to that 36 3,700 in the S&P 500. It's that simple. One other note here. Equifax came out, one of the credit companies. They're noticing that delinquencies in consumer credit in the subprime area and auto are back to where they were pre-pandemic. And we saw comments, I think it was from Target, Walmart, that were saying they're seeing the effect of the runoff or the anniversary of all these stimulus checks. So you're getting normalized, which is so back to the banks for a minute, or let's talk about the banks for a minute. It really comes down to, yes, that's one part of the market. And yes, high-end consumers are still fine. We've seen Amex tell us that. But credit reserves, probably we're going to have to still build a little bit more. And so we've talked about what is the headwind. Massive tailwind for these banks for the last few years since the COVID crisis started was the release of credit reserves. And so keep your eye on that. With any credit company, if you start to see them make earnings numbers by releasing reserves, question it. Dan, one other quick thing is that it's noticeable that October 1987 – you know, I was a freshman in college. You were still in high school. The market crashed on October 19th, 1987. Until yesterday, the last few days, that was the worst single day for both Walmart and Target. Those days they just had were as bad. The same. It's the crash day in 1987. Just I want to put that in perspective. Yeah, Black Monday, baby. Exactly. Dan, to your point on Apple, and I don't know if it's a China thing. China seems to always have when they have a cold, we get the flu. No COVID pun intended. Well, Biden's on his way to Asia. Now the rhetoric's beginning about Taiwan. And people forgot, we talked about this on the geopolitical risk stuff. It's a real issue. I mean, China-Taiwan was there before Russia-Ukraine invasion began. This was the whole rhetoric between the two. What else is happening? China is buying Russian oil to build up their reserves. So there is a lot of stuff now happening again on the geopolitical side. And you saw the headline that Biden's considering meeting MBS from Saudi Arabia as soon as early June. So that just tells you how this world has changed. Joe Biden is going to meet MBS, the guy who was Jared Kushner's WhatsApp texting pal during the whole Khashoggi thing, and Joe Biden's going to go meet with him. Porter Collins sent me something today. He told me the new ESG, we'll get into the ESG Tesla thing. Obviously, we can never not talk about it. Stands for energy, soybeans, and gold. I do think it's interesting, though, that this art complex, Danny, today and yesterday, the day the NASDAQ was down 5%, is outperforming the NASDAQ right here. And largely because, we've been saying this, they're going to shoot the generals last and they're getting to Apple. I mean, look at how poorly Apple's acting. Uh, Obviously, Amazon was acting very poorly before the other two. But Microsoft and Google are each down about 24 25% on the year. And there just doesn't seem to be a bid for Apple right now. I will tell you while you were gone. Remember my whole Qs and Twos thing, buying the Qs and buying the Twos? The last Thursday. Thursday, I started nibbling at the Qs, which I have not done in, I can't even tell you how long. And I started buying the GOVT. It's an ETF that tracks U.S. Treasuries. Just so your new assistant over here, Stephen Rafis. Yeah. When he says Qs, just so you know, don't get excited. This is not the Carrier Dome. These are the Q. Q Did you Q. hear this? I just want to make sure the that. Carrier Dome today. Yeah. Got renamed. Now, first of all, I've been in hundreds of times as a kid all throughout the 80s watching the basketball, the football, and the lacrosse team. Okay. They just renamed it 
the JMA Wireless Dome. So is that going bankrupt? What does that mean? It must be. I don't even know. I've never even heard of the JMA Wireless. Is that like a wireless company upstate New York or something like that? It's so budget. It's so embarrassing. And I was thinking, why don't we just put a GoFundMe together? Maybe we can make it the Risk Reversal Dome. Wouldn't that be cool? I thought they should name it after your dad, everything. My dad, Steve Nathan. You know, he was the president of the Varsity Club, and he's a letter winner of distinction at Syracuse University. How's that? Amazing. All right, fair enough. All right, let's move on. What are we doing now? We're going to, we're going to this Musk. You know who that is, Elon Musk, that guy, CEO of Tesla. He's melting down on the very platform that he's trying to overpay by 50%. It seems really weird, right? So I'm in Scotland, yeah, and I see these things come across, and I see Stephanie Rule's tweet. And I was thinking the same thing. You need an 8K. And this is all the fault of Jay Clayton, who spoke last week. He's probably selling a book. Bernanke's selling a book saying, oh, we waited too long for inflation. That's the other thing that got me angry. Oh, no. I was very relaxed over there. I saw certain things that made me crazy about those guys. Anyway, the news today, let's fast forward past the Twitter saga, whatever. Maybe he gets out of it. Maybe he doesn't. But congrats that he got to sell $8.5 billion worth of stock there. He sold some SpaceX stock there. Did he sell SpaceX? Yeah, he sold some Really? SpaceX. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the valuation huh. was. Whatever. But so the most recent thing, and Kathy Wood got up in arms, is that the S&P has an ESG index, and they kicked Tesla out of the index yesterday. And Musk was upset. And here's what's funny about it. It's meaningless in the sense of would you want to go short a company or not. But what's funny is that all the things we talk about, all the hypocrisy, not even about ESG investing, because we've been talking about that for a long time. But the other stuff that he was doing, forget about if you want to give him the environmental check mark because he makes electric cars, great. But the corporate governance and the social aspect of it, they claim they kicked him out because Racial discrimination, they actually itemized these things, right? They actually went out of their way to say it. Poor working conditions and their handling of the autopilot crashes. I mean, that's like a detailed drip. It wasn't like, oh, you score. And they kicked him out and they added two oil companies. So obviously people are like, this is a hypocrisy. And maybe it is at a level of hypocrisy. But my point is that I feel like the walls are coming in a little bit. I've been saying for a long time, I'll know that the market has corrected when Tesla goes. And when it goes, it's going to go from 900 to 800 to 700. It's going to go quickly. And, I, and the last thing I'll say on this is that at 500, it's a good short, in my opinion. So I'm saying there's people out there, they're like, oh, I missed it. No, you didn't. I was shorting this thing at $60, meaning 300 pre-split, okay? So 300, now it's equivalent of 60. So I saw Dan Ives come out today, and I worked with Dan, by the way, for a period at FBR years ago. He's the Wedbush analyst. Just lowered his target from 1,400 to 1,000. I think he's upset that he didn't get any advisory deals in this last few deals that they've done, whatever. But he made a comment. He's like, I don't understand what Musk is doing. This is a joke. It's like, a plane crashing and choosing between salted and unsalted peanuts as it's going into the earth. Okay. He said that today, like in that quote, something's going on where he's brought down all his numbers in China. You brought up Apple in China. Yeah, you yeah. brought up all his numbers in China. There's something happening. And then the last thing I'll say is that came out today was that there was a FOIA request. And it turns out in 2019, the SEC was asking Tesla for daily cash numbers on their bounty. And the reason, if I remember, I have not read through this, but the reason I remember was people believe that Tesla would, no cash, no cash, no cash. And then the last day of the quarter, not their average cash, but the last day, they bring cash in to show. So what's going on with Elon, and it's interesting that sometimes we're getting really confused. What are we talking about? Are we talking about Tesla? Are we talking about his personal bid for Twitter? Are we talking about SpaceX, the boring company, Solar City debacle, like all this stuff? What are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about is a guy who actually cannot afford to pay $44 billion, which he has a contract to do that the courts could force him to do. So that's what we're talking about, A. And now he's having this Trumpy meltdown on Twitter. This is right out of Trump's playbook. So he tweeted this yesterday. In the past, I voted Democrat because 
they were mostly the kindness party, but they have become the party of division and hate, so I can no longer support them and will vote Republican. Now watch their dirty trick campaign against me unfold. I guarantee you Trump probably tweeted something like that on numerous occasions, almost to the word. So here's a guy, David Rothschild. I don't know who he is. He tweets back at Musk. Rich white son of Emerald Mine owner who grew up in apartheid South Africa is the real victim in our society. Hashtag thoughts and prayers. And this is the beauty. Mm-hmm. The next one. Dude agreed to buy Twitter for $44 billion, now trading under $30 billion in his public meltdown to get out of deal he can no longer afford due to collapsing stock price of his core asset, electric car company. He cannot stop bashing Democrats who subsidize and buy electric cars. And his next tweet says, seems like a bad business strategy to tell your core customer base that you hate them. Now, Dan Benton was on this podcast a few weeks ago. Dan has been a Tesla shareholder for a decade. He knows Musk. He used to speak to him on a regular basis about the company as they're building. Dan has multiple Teslas. He loves the company, loves the story. And he said on the podcast, it seems like he's quit Elon here. And he and I have been talking about this for years. He just hasn't gotten his strategy, how he's done this. This is Dan's point. He made this point on our podcast a month ago. He's like, Republicans don't buy Teslas. Right. (laughs) <laughs> right? Right. Maybe the libertarian one. The and the ones that own the stock are going to convince themselves it's still okay. So you're telling me from a shareholder standpoint, watching him melt down like this, does it make any sense? I've made my comments on it. I know, but I honestly think he's losing it here. And if I'm a Tesla shareholder, I might love the story. I might love the secular trends. I might love everything about it, but this would scare the shit out of me. The last thing I'll just say, you mentioned China as it relates to Tesla. We talked about this on the pod. I think he has a massive conflict of interest. Buying Twitter in the name of free speech but the most repressive regime on the planet where Twitter's not allowed, he has to cozy up to so he can make cars there and sell them to a billion-plus Chinese people where the country really wants to go down that route. It seems like a real problem. Now, the other thing I'll say is the stock popped earlier this week because the Chinese were saying that they were going to come out of these aggressive lockdowns. And then did you hear this, that they said the Shanghai plant can't open when they want to? They own him. Oh, I know. And the money's never coming out of there. By the way, this is nothing new. Like, I've been obviously tracking the guy for a long time. Yeah, you have. But why all of a sudden, because he's put himself back in the spotlight, he's trying to ruin another company like Twitter. Imagine being an employee at Twitter, like a, a true employee at Twitter. And you're trying to figure out who am I working for, what's going to happen here. He just throws things into turmoil. But listen, the racial discrimination, the sexual discrimination, the, the treatment of the workers. How about the treatment of the workers in China? Okay, He brings them a sleeping bag. They show up for 12-hour work shifts. He provides food. He's a walking hypocrisy, Dan. I said this six weeks ago. He has ruined the corporate governance to me. And shame on the SEC and shame on Jay Clayton going on, oh, we got to do this. He caused this. And something's going on because for Dan Ives to do what he did, you can feel it. And he's trending on Twitter. I saw Musk trending, like the hatred for him. Like it's starting to gear up a little bit. The hatred, but also the defense. I mean, I think he's horrible for this bro culture, this pro-tech libertarian culture. And I'm telling you, I think it's actually really dangerous. Think about what he's doing to the thousands of employees, their livelihoods at Twitter right now, okay? Parag Agarwal already knows that he's being fired. Parag Agarwal last week fired a couple very senior executives, fired them before he's going to be fired. Think about the rank-and-file people at Twitter. I think he's a bully, And I think his behavior is just really unsavory, man. He's a walking hypocrisy, so we can move on from him. All right, fair enough. Let's move on. So one of the things that happened while I was away was this Luna Terra disaster. I heard of it before, but to be honest, I had to read up on it. Yeah, you've been focused on Tether. Yeah, Tether is more of my thing, which that's a whole other issue because money is coming out of Tether here. 
real quickly for, for this audience, okay? I had a really good conversation with Melton Demers, who's been on our podcast many times, on OK Computer earlier in the week. You guys should check it out. It dropped on Wednesday. And a guy who I think is a genius, Trevor Marshall, he's a CTO co-founder of Current. And he's been, literally read the Bitcoin white paper 12 years ago, changed his life and the sort of business he wanted to build. Meltem's obviously all in on crypto. And we had this conversation, algorithmic stable coins versus collateralized stable yeah. coins. You have been focused on the collateralized because you don't like the collateral. You've yeah. been saying that you think there's Chinese commercial paper in there. There's like a bunch of crap in there. Okay, so that's the Tether thing. And there's been FUD, you know what they call that, fear, uncertainty, and doubt about Tether. But all of a sudden... It's this algorithmic stablecoin, which by all accounts looks like the craziest Ponzi. I was just going to say, you took the words I'm out. So it wasn't even on your radar, but it became on your radar. Yeah, because $45 billion disappeared. And I get this normally from my kids. My older kid, who's he's forbidden to basically hold any crypto because he knows I'll never speak to him again. But he goes, Dad, my buddy just lost $200,000. I'm like, and what? He goes, this Luna thing. I look it up. I'm like, who would be in something like this? I mean, I, and you just took the words out of my mouth. Ponzi scheme. So let's talk about Tether for a second. Yeah. And Meltem tweeted, I don't know the date, but I, I hit you on text. I was in, I think I was in Scotland. And I go, something's up. And you go, what? I'm like, I'm reading Meltem's Twitter feed. Yeah. And maybe you can pull it up. It was May 7th. And I got the sense from her that she was sensing that things were getting unstable, so to speak. No, no pun intended. I'm not saying she knew anything. What I'm saying is that normally, and she's obviously brilliant. She's obviously very tied into what's going on. And so I said that because something's happening. And with this whole USDT versus USDC and the movement of all the stuff going on, yeah. people are trying to figure out what is the tether number. So if it was $83 billion of collateral, they don't really give you everything. All they say is I think half of it is made up of cash and treasure, and the other you just have to guess. Is it Chinese commercial property, paper? What is it? Yeah. Does it get tested? And the argument back then, I remember when we first started this show and we had a lot of crypto people on, I said, don't you care as a crypto person that believes in all of this that something like a tether – that may be a fraud. Yep. Doesn't that bother you? Isn't that bad for the industry? And they're like, well, no, it, it's fine. We think people will buy Bitcoin directly if something happens to Tether. And my comment is, I read a lot of people who said, it's horrible, like I'm committing suicide on the Luna thing and whatever. And then they're begging the US government to help them. Where's my FDIC equivalent insurance? Where's my stuff? And this just tells you, right? So there's a lot more of these things that are going to happen. And again, you can be in these projects that use Ethereum, whatever you call them, Dan. DeFi. DeFi things, whatever. And some will be successful. But it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out what seems too good to be true or too easy. And a Ponzi scheme. And what are the regulators? They'll be late. They're not going to do anything about it. Because you know why? They don't want to own it, the regulators, right now. They want to see this thing just go away. So Yeah, it's interesting. Listen to the pod from the other day. She does seem a bit more cautious. I think she thinks there's more pain to come in crypto land. And she had mentioned the week before to me, the average peak to drop decline in crypto since its inception, Bitcoin in particular, is like 80%. So here we are. We're down about 60%. If you look at a two-year chart, Bitcoin in particular is holding on for dear life at this 29,000, 30,000 level where it pretty much bottomed out last year, last couple times. But it really feels like going through there, it's a straight shot down to a gap fill near 24,000 and probably 20,000, which was the height in 2017 of that retail frenzy and then the breakout in late 2020. So it'll be interesting to see. Listen, everyone says they're hodlers, right, until they're not. It has been 100% correlated for the most part to the markets. It's been a beta of 12 on the market. And you can gauge how the market's doing overnight by just looking at how crypto is doing, right? It just is. It's setting the tone for the markets. And that's not healthy necessarily. So I don't know where these things settle out, but Dan, I don't think there's enough history on this stuff to really draw. Yes, you can use technicals. You can see big levels. Carter looks at them when it broke. He's like, this thing's going to 25,000. All right. One last thing here. So we're into the close on Thursday. 
Cisco is the disaster du jour. And this one was really interesting. This was a big revenue miss, Danny. And when you think about it, so they're getting hit from supply chain disruptions, China exposure, U.S. dollar that's raging. 40% of their sales are from overseas. I just think it's interesting at this point in the cycle of earnings for this period that this comes out where it does. I think there's going to be lots of tech companies that have similar sorts of exposure to Asia, to the dollar, to you know supply demand, things that are screwed up. So this thing down 15%, again, this is a stock that trades at 12 times as a good balance sheet. So I just think there's lots of canaries in the coal mine this week. People were hiding in things that they thought were cheap, and they are. And by the way, there probably are buys here. By the way, let me end with this, and I'm going to tie Musk back in. Okay, fair enough. Martin Shkreli, Uh-oh. we all know, Farmer Bro, Farmer Bro, gets out of prison this week. Billy McFarland, Fire Festival, comes out that he's out of prison this week. You know what? They both got out early. They just served about half their time. One was seven years, one was eight years. They got out whatever. They used the First Step Act in the federal prison system to get out early. The First Step Act was like intended for people that were using crack cocaine that was deemed to be massive federal offense versus cocaine. It was racially motivated prison sentences, and somehow they get to do it. So maybe they're making room for some more people to come in here because when this— Some more white-collar criminals. Yeah, when this tide goes out, a lot of that stuff's going to happen. So to tie that back in, but I, that's another thing I saw, which is a joke. So there'll be crypto bros, there'll be— EV bros. Okay, I get you. All right, listen, that was really fun, Danny. That was a hot 30, as we say in the... I don't know if we say that in the business thing, Amanda. I don't know, maybe a hot 30. Listen, this was fun. It's great to have you back. We're IRL. Guy Dami will be back with us next week. But stick around, because Danny and I go off the tape with Guy Dami. You're going to hear how he got into the business, how he became the OG fast money guy, right? And the book he's writing. Oh, yeah. Well, fair enough. And did we know his favorite band is the theme song from The Big Short, which he still hasn't seen? I think everybody knows who his favorite band is. All right. When we come back, Guy Dami. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Now we get to welcome Guy Adami to the front stage. I'm going to get my revenge so to speak, from when you guys interviewed me. And you are the Dos Equis, most interesting man in the world. So the next time they run a new ad campaign, I hope you're up for it, guy, because I did a little research on you over the last few days because I had time off last week. So I'm very excited to be conducting this interview. And I know I don't know you as well as Dan does because he's been your right-hand man. Sidekick. He's been your sidekick. I'm really looking forward to this. So welcome to On the Tape. 
Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I love your work. Both you and Dan Nathan do extraordinary work. I've been a fan for a long time. It's just really an honor to be in the midst of both of you. Yeah, that's a matter of fact. Guy Dami, you know, we did a little oppo research, as they say, in the business on you. Did you even know that you have a Wikipedia page, Guy? You know, somebody pointed that out to me. Linda's like, what? Linda's my wife. She's like, where do people find this shit? And I'm like, I honest to God don't know. It's fantastic. But I went and looked at it. And for the most part, it seems to be pretty accurate. Somebody's out there doing some due diligence, as they say. All right. But we have to debunk one fact on there. And this is not cited. So I'm starting to wonder if whether you put it in yourself. His 104-yard interception return against Hastings High School is still one of the longest recorded in high school football. Talk to us about that. Did that happen circa 1948? And was it you versus New Rockney or something like that? What was going on back then? It was October, I think in 1981, we were at Hastings. It was the third quarter. They're driving down the field. They had one of the better quarterbacks in Westchester County that year. They were on our 18-yard line or so. They threw a couple of ins to one of the wide receivers they had. I was playing safety, and I looked over to their sideline, and I said to myself, this mf'er is going to now go and throw an out. So I waited. I sort of baited him, and I jumped it about five yards deep in the end zone, and I took it back the entire sideline, about 104 yards. That's absolutely true. And I got to tell you something, and this is not to sound like an asshole, but I never came off the field. I played offense, defense, every special team, but I actually had to take a series off because I couldn't breathe after that. You and Gordy Lockbaum. Okay, there you go. Holy Cross fame. Yes, I knew Gordy Lockbaum. Absolutely. Let's get someone to cite that, one of your on-the-tape fans, please, in Wikipedia. I'll get the film. One of the guys I played with has all of our high school films, so I will get the film, and I don't know if you can put that somewhere on the risk reversal website. I will get the grainy footage of me taking it back 104. So you played wide receiver and tight end, it said, and you obviously played safety. You were big safety. What was your playing weight, 200, 195? No, I was probably in high school. I was probably somewhere between 185 and 190, 6'2", 6'3". I had some wheels back then, Danny, believe it or not. So what would make you bring that out out of the end zone? What was the score in the game at that time? I just need to know because I know most coaches would say take a knee. I think we were up like 14-7 or something. No, I was not taking a knee. No, 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 no. I was sort of, in my mind, I'm like, I'm taking this mf or back. I'm going the distance. What do you mean mf or The kids say mofo. All right, but Guy Diamond, let's do this because a lot of people who know you and love you from the CNBC's Fast Money, they follow you on Twitter. They know that you are a prolific tweeter and you also tweet about Georgetown a whole heck of a lot. So you used your football prowess to help you get into that fine Jesuit institution here. Talk to us about was football a big way for you to get out of Croton on the Hudson and find yourself down in D.C.? Is that how this all transpired? Well, if you've watched Fast Money over the last 15 and a half or so years, or if you've listened to our podcast the last year and a half or so, you will realize that I'm not the brightest bulb in the fixture. So something had to help me get in. And the reason it helped me get in is because the Georgetown coaches, there were two of them, came to see a kid from Irvington High School, which is another town in Westchester, and they came to scout him at a game they were playing at our place at Croton. And I had a decent game that day, blocked the punt, recovered in the end zone, had a couple of grabs. I think I had a pick or two, and they wound up calling me, and that's how it all happened. So the point of that story is, Danny Moses, play like somebody's watching you every single – because you never know who's watching, and that's been my mantra 
you know, act as if your audience is watching for the first time, because quite frankly, you never know who's out there. Everything you do, Guy, I will say, is with passion. If I were to describe you in a word, it's passion. And I know you played basketball also, I believe, in high school, and I'm sure you were prolific there, given your athletic ability. So you got to go to Georgetown and see one of the greatest teams in basketball history. But tell me, if you could have picked a sport to play professionally, would it have been basketball or football? Football, 100%. I always wanted to play in the NFL. I was 20 pounds too light, three-tenths of a second-ish too slow, and just didn't have the ability. But I absolutely wanted to play on Sundays. My favorite player growing up for the Giants was a couple guys. John Mendenhall played defensive line. A guy named Jack Gregory played defensive line. And Bob Tucker was their tight end. I think he wore number 46, which was pretty cool back then. And I'm like, son of a bitch, if I could do anything – It'd be play tight end or wide receiver for the New York football giants. Obviously, that was going to happen, but that was my dream. I want to stay in this era here before we move into your business career, because I want to go back again, back to high school again. Go back. It's like that Eddie Money song. So after high school, obviously, then to jump forward and jump back. In 2010, you were, I guess, inducted into the Croton High School. I'll call it the Hall of Fame. They call it something else. But was that meaningful to you? Is that something that you take pride in? Or tell me about that. No, it was really cool. I got a letter in the mail, said we want to induct you in our Hall of Fame. I think it was May or something of 2010. I went in with one of my very, very close childhood friends, a guy named Fred Opie, who Dan Nathan knows through lacrosse. But Fred played lacrosse at Syracuse University. He went on to play at the world team. So Fred and I went in together. It was a big deal. And I think for high school that graduates, probably 150 to 180 kids a class do the math. I'm probably one of 20 or so people that's in the Croton Hall of Fame. So that's definitely really cool. And it was nice to go back to the town I grew up in. Danny just said that one word that describes you is passion. And the other one that I would throw in there, and I agree with that, would be service guy. You talk about going back. I know how frequently you go back to your old hometown, how you do things for your old community, and none more than Georgetown. You're a constant participant there. You have kids there, but you also do stuff for all your kids' school and high school and that sort of thing. And I know that your kids had a Jesuit education in high school. They have one at Georgetown here. Talk to us a little bit about what that meant for you in it seems like it's very tied into your kind of notion of service and why you feel connected to these institutions that helped you become the person you are today. Crone's a small town. It was one of the last towns literally in the country where you only had to dial four numbers to make a phone call. So when I called my grandmother, it was 9069. Then we went to seven numbers. People are apoplectic. So you can imagine what happened when it went to 10. So growing up in a small town, you don't really have the kind of access to some of the things I saw at Georgetown University when I got there in late August of 1982. And I will tell you, I was ill-equipped to set foot on that campus, but I learned pretty quickly. The point I bring up is it's so important to surround yourself with people that think differently, look differently, different points of view politically and otherwise, different walks of life, different economic spectrum, all those different things we're at Georgetown University. So you could have been rooming with a kid that was the son of a plumber from the Midwest, or you could have been rooming with the son of the King of Jordan or something like that and everything in between. So why was it important? Because it rounds you out as an individual and it makes you realize that the world's a pretty big place. And although you think you know all the answers at 17 and 18, the reality is you don't. So you've been asked to speak to a lot of high schoolers, I think college kids as well. Would you go and speak to them What's the topic? Because I searched online. I couldn't find anything on YouTube. Believe me, I was looking for it. So what do you talk about most to communicate to these kids? 
Don't let people define who you are. And one of the stories I'm most proud of is fall of 1960. And Dan knows this story. Five women walked into an auditorium filled with men on the campus of Fordham Law School in Lincoln Center. And the gentleman that was running orientation looked around the room and picked out each one of those five women and said, I'm not really sure why you're here. You might meet your husband, but you're certainly not going to get a law degree. And this is 1960. Well, in the case of my mother, he was half right because she, in fact, did meet my father, but she did subsequently get her law degree, as did the other four women. And I tell that story because you don't let some asshole dictate who you're going to be or who you want to be or what you want to do in life. And that served me pretty well. So one of the big messages I tell people is don't let others define who you are, what you want to accomplish. Well, it's funny, Guy. It doesn't seem like you let too many other people into your psyche. I've known you now, I want to say 13 years or so, and I met you on the set of Fast Money. I think it was back in 2009 or so, but you are a stubborn mofo. I think people who know you well, where does that stubbornness come from? Was it your dad? I mean, because he was an old school guy, right? And you were brought up in an old school town, right upstate or so. I think he hailed from the Bronx, if I'm correct or so. Was it kind of this immigrant demeanor that worked its way into the suburbs? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if it came from my old man. To be honest with you, between him and my mother, he was probably not nearly as stubborn as she was. I'm not really sure where it comes from. I don't know the answer. I am stubborn like a son of a bitch, and I'm set in my ways, which is unfortunate. But to a certain extent, it served me pretty well. It probably comes from my mother. It also probably comes from the fact that, as I've mentioned a thousand times on our podcast and on Fast Money and in written works, I'm half Italian and half Sicilian. And for those that know, as they say, what do they say, Dan? If you know, you know. Well, if you know this one, you know. And there is a difference. And I think Sicilians embrace that. But they're stubborn sons of bitches. And I'm one of them. So I don't know. It sort of worked for me. Maybe I should be a little more not open-minded, but not as dead set in my ways. Maybe I should branch out. Well, the funny thing is, not really one to explore. Like if I go to a restaurant and there's chicken parm on the menu, I'm getting chicken parm. So again, that works for me. I'm fine with it. I don't need to branch out into some of the other things that you guys both probably enjoy. Well, there's a reason that Godfather, I just assume is your favorite movie of all time since you could quote the entire thing, but we'll just forget about the crime part of the family, but family itself. And I know how important family is to you and your wife and three kids are everything and you would do anything for them. And I've seen that firsthand, how you treat your kids and how that's your top priority. You'll cancel anything for them. So can you talk about that before we delve into your career? Because I really want to get to Drexel and all that other shit. So talk about your kids for a second and the godfather and what it means to you. Thanks, Danny. I appreciate that. And hopefully that's what you're saying is half true. I mean, I do believe that and you put family first above everything else. And I think when you do that, everything seems to fall into line. My wife's a brilliant person. She's a scientist from Merck. I mean, she is the brains, the looks, and sort of the steadiness in the family. And I'm sort of the outlier. But what we've done throughout our almost 25 years now of marriage is put our kids first for sure. And I think, listen, Dan knows my kids. Danny, you've met a couple of them. I think they definitely understand that. I think in years to come, they'll appreciate it more. But that's the foundation of everything. Your kids, your family, your immediate family, and to a certain extent, sort of your extended family as well. When people are in trouble and when people need help or just looking for guidance, you try to be there for people. And I think if more people understood that, I think we'd all be better off. Well, Guy, you've always been there for me. And I will say that I've learned a lot about 
being a parent, being a partner from you and from Linda and getting to know how you guys interact with your kids. You have an amazing family and you guys have no idea how many calls that Guy and I have been on over the last few years where we're talking markets or we're talking to something about our business or we're talking about something and then all of a sudden it really turns into a parenting moment or some sort of relationship moment. And you gave me some just amazing advice a few years ago and I think it was pre-pandemic, but it was about the kids and you're like, listen, you know I love them to death. There's nothing I wouldn't do for them, but there's plenty of things I wouldn't do there. I am not there to be their friend. I'm there to be their parent. They're sure of this whole thing. And I'll tell you, until you said that to me at one point, it really helped me rethink about a couple things I was doing. And you've been an extraordinary husband, but also a great father. No, that's nice of you to say. I mean, in terms of not being their friend, I know that sounds sort of harsh, but I think as the years go by, you know, hopefully I'll make it to old age, although some would say that I'm an old age now. I mean, older age, I guess. And the hope is that as you get older, that relationship morphs into exactly that, a friendship. But when kids are young and when they're in their formative years and as they get to be teenagers, young adults and those types of things, they have enough friends. They don't need me to tell them what they want to hear. They need me to tell them what they need to hear. And there's that line of demarcation. And I've told my kids a hundred times, listen, you don't need to like me, but you need to listen to me. And I think they've sort of figured that out. So when you were around your kid's age, you came out of college, you went to work at Drexel, I believe. You were on the floor of the Merck, a whole different side of the business than where they ended up blowing up. Talk about that experience. Talk about living through that experience and from the eyes of Mercantile Exchange and what went on upstairs at Drexel. Drexel was an amazing place. I didn't know it at the time. I've only come to understand it years later, but we were sort of the Oakland Raiders of Wall Street. And I say that it was one of those things where everybody sort of hated us, but I think in a weird way, they all respected us. And in some ways, I think a lot of them wanted to be like us, but the doctrine of the day didn't sort of allow for it. It was a much different Wall Street firm. It was definitely more of a rebellious, Wild West type of place. And again, I only knew that in retrospect, but in terms of my first job, They sent me, they, the commodities guys and gals, sent me down to the floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange to sort of learn what markets were all about because I had no idea whatsoever. And I will tell you, the first day I got down there, I'm like, I don't know how anything gets done. All it was to me was just this cacophony of sound, and I could not make one voice from the next. What winds up happening, though, is if you work down there long enough, you start to be able to hear certain voices and hear different things going on at different times. And I will tell you, Within a few months, I was able to hear, and this is actually true, multiple conversations at one time while having a conversation with one of the traders upstairs. And that's really served me well in life. So I could be in a room talking to somebody, but I'll hear the conversations going on around me. And that sounds sort of creepy, but it's actually a great skill set. And I sort of honed it down on the floor of the exchange. And I learned more about markets down there than I have in my entire life. Guy, what was it about markets? What was it about that open outcry sort of situation? Obviously, at the time, you were going to take whatever job you could get at a great firm like that, but there were banking jobs. There were jobs that were more cerebral trading jobs. This was a job that there was a physical component to it. And some of the things that you just mentioned that you had to learn how to multitask only in this business, sometimes that only exists on a place like the floor of the Mercantile Exchange or something. Was there something that drew you to that? Did you know that that was the place for you in this business? I didn't know going in, but I quickly learned that it was. And if I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, to Danny's earlier question, I was going to do something that sort of mirrored that. And I will tell you that, you know, the day-to-day trading in commodities world, I mean, that was as close to a professional athlete as I was going to get. And why? Because each day was a game. Each day there was a scorecard. Each day you won or lost. You knew who your foes were. There was a level of physicality about it, believe it or not. But just having that competition each day was something I thrived on. And the immediacy of it 
was great. In retrospect, being an investment banker where you work on things for months, if not longer, would not have served me well. But doing something like that where you could win-lose on any given day, but then come back the next day to try again was great. And just in terms of learning about markets, you learn so much about human behavior, You know, when people are hurting, when people are vulnerable, when people are in a position of strength, just from the looks in their eyes and the way their voice sounds down there. It was a great study in behavioral economics, and I picked that up down there. But for that, I never would have learned any of those things. Guy, I, I say all the time that behavioral finance is the key to really understanding that in the history of the markets, whether you want to read Jesse Livermore or the rise and fall of long-term capital, or even the big short, so to speak, it's always the same thing. It's just a different product each time. And to know how people are going to behave is 95% of the battle. The human nature aspect, electronic trading and algorithm trading has taken a lot of that out. And as far as trying to read the tape versus reading people, it's just different. And I think having the skill set to understand and translate to figure out what the tape is telling you and try to equate that into human behavior and how people are going to react, whether there's a certain economic number that comes out, earnings report, what's built into the market, what's not. It's a whole different skill set. But I truly believe that having the skill set that you have and that I have some of, I know Dan has as well, of being what we used to know as high-touch trading and dealing with people and taking real risk where if you lose, you lose. You're not passing it off to somewhere to some other market maker. So talk about that, what you just said, and then bring it further in your career. Because I know you went to Jay Aaron, part of Goldman Sachs commodity trading business that was going on there because you kind of evolved as things went on. Can you talk about the next legs? I'll work backwards for sure. I mean, today's world, to your point, the human interaction clearly isn't there, but that ability to sort of read what's going on, to try to gauge the behavior of the mob or to gauge which way the boat is tilting, that still exists without question. Danny, you do it fantastically, as does Dan. And listen, it manifests itself into a lot of things that we do now. I mean, in terms of the options market, without question, you can learn a lot and you can glean a lot by the way people are thinking, and just in terms of the things you read, how people are leaning and how bullish or bearish people are in a certain market, certain stock, a certain indice, a certain commodity. So I think to that extent, my early years served me really well. In terms of Jay Aaron, it was a natural progression for me to go to Drexel. Subsequently, our group got bought by AIG during the bankruptcy, but 10 years into my Drexel slash AIG career, I got a phone call from some of the guys, mostly from Goldman Sachs. It was, I think, early March of 1996. They called me up on a Thursday or Friday. We were all pretty close. Our world was relatively small, the precious metals world. And they said, we'd love you to come in and talk with us. So that next Friday, I went in and sat down on the desk at Jay Aaron. I met with some people and they said, listen, our head gold trader needs to go to London to sort some things out. In retrospect, he needed to sort out a Sumitomo situation where they had blown up in the copper market and he was sent there to sort of unwind a series of trades. So they needed a new gold trader and they asked me to come. And I'll never forget my final interview. It was the next Friday after that first one. I sat in a conference room the size of maybe your kitchen. And in that room was a guy named Jim Riley, who nobody's probably ever heard of. But it was also another guy named Lloyd Blankfein, who I'm sure everybody here has heard of. And Lloyd basically said a lot of wonderful things to the extent like we've watched your career over the last six or seven years. We love what you've done at Drexel and subsequently AIG. We'd like you to come here to be our gold trader. And I said to Lloyd, I'm humbled. I'd love to have some time to think about it. And without missing a beat, Lloyd said to me, guy, you can have all the time that you want. You just need to give me an answer before you leave this conference room. And I knew right there 
that was my first test. I wasn't even hired at Goldman Sachs yet, and that was my first test. And the passing that test was to say, you know what, Lloyd, I don't need any more time. When do I start? That was the pass answer. The fail answer was to sit there with my mouth agape, which I didn't do. But that was sort of the way of the world at J. Aaron back in the day, and it was a wonderful experience. And you think about the people that I worked with literally side by side. Lloyd Blankfein was one of them, but so was Gary Cohn, who started his career seven or eight years earlier at J. Aaron. Harvey Schwartz, who went on to be in the running for CEO, was vice president for a period of time. And there's a laundry list of other people on that desk. It was a who's who of people in the commodities world. I think I was there for about eight years, eight years that I absolutely treasure. All right. So let's flash forward a little bit. How did you go from this commodity maven trading at two legendary firms to find your way into the boring stock market? It sounds like though you found your way into the stock market when things were getting really interesting, guy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting there is that commodities world was sort of dying in 2000 and equities world, as you all know, was exploding, exploding in a good way at the time and then subsequently in a bad way. And internally at Goldman Sachs, they were looking to poach people to bring over to the equities division. And my name got on that list somehow. And I think Gary Cohn might have been one of the advocates for it in a good way. Gary pushed for it because it was pretty clear that really not a lot was happening in the commodities world. So I went over to equities at Goldman Sachs, and that was a completely different world. Not better, not worse, just completely different. But I learned about block trading, and it was a fascinating entree into a world where in my past life at J. Aaron, AIG, Drexel, we took risk because we had to take risk. We had to make bets on things. And the equities world was a little bit different. People were paying you to execute on their behalf. And it didn't make any sense to me that people were paying a six cents a share to execute orders without risk, without taking risk, without picking a side. And I actually said to somebody a few weeks in, I'm like, I'm not really quite sure why these guys and gals are paying you the kind of money they are. They gave me some bullshit answer. Well, they're paying for our calendar and our research and our ability to take risks when we need to. And that's why they pay us. And that was, I think, just reconciling in their head. But I actually said, I'm I'm telling you folks now, I don't know when this is going to end, but it's going to end and it's going to end cataclysmically. And that's what subsequently happened. But we were making money hand over fist in that equities division, basically on a commission basis. And it was jaw-dropping the amount of business that went through that equities desk. So Guy, we actually overlapped, I think, for a brief period at CIBC. I was there during Oppenheimer years. They were acquired by CIBC. You came on board. I want to say maybe we were there for a month or two together. But then I leave there. I lose touch with you completely. Not that we were in touch really day to day, but I knew who you were. And all of a sudden, I see you pop up on television. And I'm wondering... What made you make that move from being trader to going on television? Was it a disenchantment with the business? It was an opportunity to just talk and help people. That's a great question, Danny. So it's interesting. Within six months of me joining CIBC, I think it was 02, but at my age, your years get mixed up. But I'll tell you, there was something called Charity Day, which I think you're familiar with. It's a day where CIBC specifically, a lot of firms then subsequently went on to do it, BTIG being the one of the big ones. They give all their commissions back to different charities. And it's typically done somewhere between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So I'm at the firm maybe six months or thereabout. And CNBC was on our trading desk. Bertha Coombs was there with a cameraman. They had their crew there. And they were broadcasting from the desk. And they were looking for people to interview. And I was just a trader on the block desk. I wasn't anybody particularly special. I'm still not, by the way, but they, nobody was willing to do it. The guy that ran the desk didn't want to do it. The guy that ran the department didn't want to do it. And somebody came up to me and said, look, we have people from CNBC here 
would you be willing to go on air with them? I said, absolutely. They said, do you need any prep? I said, not particularly. I said, where are they? They, they pointed me over the direction. I walked over to Bertha Coombs. Ten minutes later, I was on air with her and Liz Clayman, and I did about a two-and-a-half, three-minute hit from the floor of CIBC on Liz Clayman's show. Liz calls me the next day and says, listen, we really enjoyed how that went. Would you be willing to come on with us from time to time? And I said, sure. And I got it cleared from my superiors. And for the next, again, probably six or nine months, I would go on air with Liz Clayman once or twice a week. It all sort of lined up with Jim Cramer's show starts. His show takes off. And within a year of that, CNBC is now looking for the next show. And they had this idea, they being a woman named Susan Krakauer and Dylan Radigan, what's a trader? What do they look like? How do they interact? And they wanted to replicate that on a television show. So over the course of about three or four months, CNBC brought in about 450 or so people to screen test, talk about, interview for a yet-to-be-named show. And I was one of those people. And that show wound up being Fast Money. I've heard this story a few times here, Guy, and I've heard your thought process on this. I think to Danny's point, was it disillusionment? Was it the business was just changing, the ground moving below your feet? What was it that really interested you about talking about markets, talking about individual stories, talking about market psychology on TV? Because we all came up in the business around the same time. You were a little before me. But every time I remember being on any trading desk, you look up on CNBC, usually the volume's off. There'd be some, I know that guy. He's at my club. Why is that Chamoli on TV? You know what I mean? Like that sort of thing. And so we all had to deal with that a little bit. What was the motivation for you? Why did you want to go do it? And we make jokes all the time that you've been doing it for 37 years. You started in the mid aughts. You've been doing it since then. You only get better every day. It never looks like you're bored. What is the thing that interested you at the time and what continues to drive you to do it? For me, it was interesting because I didn't want to know what the questions were. I wanted to see if I'd be able to do it on the fly, answer questions that I should know the answers to. And if I didn't know the answer, I wasn't going to be one of those people that bullshitted my way through it. I'd answer honestly and say, I really don't know. But I also thought it was an opportunity to do something different. In my wildest dreams, I never thought it would morph into a TV show, but I thought it was a good way to sort of break up the day and force me to get better at what I'm doing, knowing that I was going to be on television once or twice a week it required me to sort of up my game. And I think it just made me better at what I did. So for me, it was a way to challenge myself. And then it subsequently became, wait a second, we can actually help people here. So if you remember, Fast Money started in earnest in January of 2007. Within six months thereabouts, the world started coming to an end and people flocked to our show in numbers that CNBC had never seen before. So we had a huge responsibility to our audience to try to help them navigate what were markets they had never seen before. And I will tell you, it's something to this day I take extraordinarily serious. It's my answer earlier. They asked Joe DiMaggio a question years ago, why do you play so hard every game? And he said, somebody might be watching you for the first time. And that's the way I feel about fast money. You never know. Somebody might be watching you for the first time. And you owe that man or woman the same amount of respect as you do an audience member that's been watching for 15 years. I can say this honestly. I mean, I've been on the fast money desk 
since I think 2011, I started doing options action with Melissa Lee in 2009. And I, I sincerely have learned so much from you, not about the markets, about just articulating things about the markets, your demeanor. On days where things are meant to be loosey-goosey, there's that. On days that it's meant to be really serious and really drill down on what's important, it's been that. And you just have this amazing range to do it all. And I really enjoy it. I think that anybody who watches our show, you'll see every once in a while, I used to be next to you all the time, just smirking because you're kind of cracking me up all the time. But the other thing I want to say is that you have this relationship with Melissa Lee, our host. And Melissa has been on the podcast three times over the last year or so. It's like a kind of a warm blanket, I think, for a lot of viewers when they turn it on. If it's been a really tough day in the market and they see you on with Mel, they kind of know you're telling it to them straight. So talk to me a little bit about your relationship with Melissa Lee. I think a lot of viewers recognize what a lot of us who are close to the show know very well that you guys have a very unique relationship. I'm the oldest of five. I have two sisters, but I will tell you in terms of having another sister, she's about as close as I've gotten over the years. And just an interesting relationship. I think as different as we are, there are a lot of similarities there as well. And to do our show successfully, I would submit, requires an extraordinary large amount of trust. I think she trusts me to know that I'm not going to tee her up or make her look bad in any way. And I think I trust her for the same thing. And we've gotten to know each other. I think people enjoy that relationship. Chemistry is something you can't create. It's either there or it's not. And I think in terms of our show, I think that's exactly what it is. And I have a great deal of respect for Melissa because I will tell you, and Dan, you know this, Danny, you do as well. Daytime CNBC is much different than after the market closes CNBC. It might be the same audience, but in a lot of ways, it's a different audience because during the market day, people watch it because they have to. When the market closes, people watch it because they choose to, which is somewhat nuanced, but it's important. And I think people gravitate towards the personalities. And she's had enough courage to allow her personality to come through. And I think that's what made the show so successful. If she didn't do that, we'd still have a successful show. But I think allowing herself to be vulnerable in situations has made it that much better. Yeah, I mean, the fact she has to deal with two of you on an ongoing basis and some of the other people that we know speaks volumes about her. But no, I will say what Dan just said, you do tell it like it is. And people do want to hear what you actually feel. You don't sugarcoat anything. And I think that's what makes you unique. And Dan, I'll say the same to you on the show. You don't feed into the public opinion. You just tell it like it is. And I think she does a great job, Melissa, of picking various people at various times and feeling the day in the audience. I actually wish that you guys would be able to interview more CEOs on that show that can come on, either talk about earnings, you guys could grill them. Because I think that would be a nice aspect. I know that's reserved for other shows that are on the CNBC docket, but that would actually be great. Danny, I appreciate that statement because I think what we've learned, and this is not to cast aspersions in any way about daytime anchors and reporters and stuff, but I think CEOs have come to understand that we ask pretty interesting questions on Fast Money. And I think for a lot of CEOs, it's a show that they've enjoyed doing. In the early days, I will tell you, we had to reach out to people to get them to come on, whomever it was. These days, people actually ask to come on, which is pretty interesting. So in terms of coming on the show and creating awareness for whatever company they're running, I mean, CEOs do enjoy coming on to Fast Money without question. Obviously, Terry Duffy's one of those CEOs has been on multiple times. We've had a number of different people that have been on multiple times, including a guy like Bob Nardelli, Michael Burns from Lionsgate when he was there, 
Dave Barger was another one when he ran JetBlue. Dave came on in the early days of Fast Money when nobody else would come on, and he would come on and talk about the airline industry. So it's been really wonderful just watching it grow in terms of having to ask people to come on to having people ask to come on. All right, enough of all this shit. Yeah, you're a great guy. You're everything. But let's get to the Iron Man, okay? That's an amazing story of perseverance. And again, like I say, you do everything with passion. So I know the story with your friend John Hyland. Can you walk us through what led you to that Iron Man, please? I met John Hyland in 2010, and shortly thereafter, he was diagnosed with AML. AML is an absolute killer. At the time of his diagnosis, I think the survival rate was about 16%. He made it through. And on the other side of it, he asked me to join the board of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, the New Jersey chapter. Of course, I said yes. As fate would have it, the night before my first board meeting, for LLS, we had on the three guys that had spent the last five years putting together what would be the first New York City Ironman, the logistics, the licenses, the registrations, everything required. And as you can imagine, pulling off a feat like that in the New York City area is quite an accomplishment. And I talked to these guys after the show, and it was pretty interesting. But in my wildest dreams, I'm like, I don't know who does shit like this. It's never going to be me. First board meeting, we're sitting there introduced to a few people. And at the end of the meeting, a guy gets up and talks about how he's doing triathlons to raise money for the Leukemia Society. So, of course, the bells went off in my head. So after the meeting ended, I went up to the director and said, Stacy, for what it's worth, last night I met the three guys that are going to do the first ever New York City Ironman next August would you be interested in me trying to get some spots? And she said, if you could pull that off, that would be great. So I called these guys up. They gave me 10 spots. And that's a big deal because these Ironmen typically sell out within eight to 10 minutes. And New York City was no exception. Typically, if you want a spot, you have to pay up for it. And I got us 10. So here I am thinking my good deed is done. Little did I know that two days later when she called me, said, listen, we've been talking it over. And we said, not only do we want you to put together the team of 10, we want you to be one of its members. Now, at the time, I weighed about 238 pounds. I would get out of breath walking up a flight of stairs. But I said to myself, there was a reason why those guys were on the show the night before. There was a reason why John asked me to join the board. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give this a shot. Why not? And that sort of is the genesis of how I got started on that quest to become an Ironman. All right, so you do this red bank sprint, half mile swim, a 3.1 mile run or something, a 14 mile bike ride. So even I did a sprint in my day. But in the middle of all this, I believe you had kidney stones and you refused to stop doing this. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's funny. I was with John Hyland. I was with my wife and I was with John's wife and we were watching our sons play in a baseball game and I'm standing at this field and I'm getting more and more uncomfortable, for lack of a better word. I mean, we can get into graphic detail, but I'll spare you. But as the last pitch of the game is thrown, I turned to my wife, Linda, and said, okay, great game. I'm driving myself to the hospital now. She looked at me. and like, what? I said, yeah, I have to go to the hospital. The funny anecdotal story on the back of that is just as I got to my car, some guy who I hadn't seen in a while walked up and wanted to start to chat. And I'm like, listen, I would love to talk to you but I really got to run. So I went, I admitted myself to the hospital. I had like 105 fever. I was absolutely miserable and I had kidney stone and the size of the kidney stone did not allow it to pass naturally if you get my drift. So it's bigger than four millimeters. I had one. I know those sizes of that stuff there, guy. We'll just leave it at millimeters in that area. 
Yeah, it was truly amazing. And I don't mean the kidney stone. I watched the transformation you're training throughout that. Feels like it was six to nine months leading up to it. And it wasn't a lock that you were going to make it to the starting line or finish. And there's an amazing story. Hopefully, Amanda will throw it in the show notes. New York Times documented, I think it was called The Road to the Iron Man. It was all about your training. And not only did you do it, guy, you guys raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for the charity. Yeah, we raised almost $700,000. At the time, it was one of the biggest single fundraisers that the Leukemia Society had seen. And obviously, we we're really proud to do it. There were 10 of us as part of the team. I think eight of us got to the starting line and seven of us finished. And I wasn't breaking any speed records. I finished in 16 hours and 19 minutes, which is right below that 17-hour cutoff, basically around 1130 that night. One of the guys that was part of the team, he absolutely should have finished, but he tore a calf muscle during the marathon portion. I'll say something just quickly about that New York Times story. It was written by Jock Steinberg. It was an amazing article. He followed me around for a while. It was really one of the best things. Well, it was about me, so obviously I can say that, but it was extraordinarily well done. It was a couple-page article, and I had not thought about that article in years. So my daughter moved into her school freshman year, we took some people out to dinner. As we're walking into the restaurant, one of my cousins called me and said, hey, I just came across this New York Times article. It's really amazing. This is years after the fact. Just as he said this, my daughter said, I want to introduce you to somebody I just met at Georgetown. His last name is Steinberg. His father was the guy that wrote the article about you. It was crazy how that lined up. And that's a true story. But that article, the New York Times article is great. And then they ran something subsequently after the Iron Man, which sort of documented me finishing it. So I can only say great things about the Times and the article that they wrote. Obviously, it had a big impact on you just being an Iron Man. And you carried that with you because when we reconnected a couple of years ago, one of the things you did, I think you thought I wrote the big short or something. So you thought I know how to read, but you handed me a few chapters of a book that you were writing that really brings together your worlds of finance and Ironman and training. And it basically starts, I believe, with you about to jump into the water. And I want to talk about this book because I think it's a great book. And I told you that right away. And I read it literally in like 20 minutes. It must have been 60 to 80 pages. I don't know how big it was. But anyway, can you talk about what's going on with that? I appreciate that, Danny. I'll tell you, Dan really encouraged me. And then when I sent it to you and a few days later, you got back to me and said, this is really incredible. I can hear your voice in this book. And I got to tell you something that meant a great deal to me. And I kid around with you all the time. I know, but you know, I hold you in the highest regard. And the fact that you thought that was something that had legs really pushed me to the next level. As it turns out, I just recently signed a book deal with Harper Collins, and we're hoping to get this out by the end of the year. And What it's basically going to be is the thread of the book will be the day of the Iron Man, and then sort of woven in and out of that thread will be some Wall Street stories, some growing up stories, some stories from Fast Money and different things that I think people will find interesting. So I thought if somehow I could use that as a thread and weave in interesting stories, I thought that would make a great book. Both you and Dan agreed, and now we're going sort of fast forward and hopefully get it done by the fall. Yeah, well, I'll take full credit for it. Thank you, Guy. I expect to be in the front jacket there. 
All right, well, listen, any regular listener of On the Tape, of Fast Money, of any of the other content that we do, they know that you layer in a litany of literary things, of music lyrics. Let's talk about the music in particular, because Fast Money, you've been making jokes to Melissa Lee about music lyrics. They all go right over her head. Now, Danny and I are catching most of these. Tim Seymour catches all of them here. What is it about you and classic rock and roll guy? I think music is so important. I mean, classic rock was sort of the soundtrack of my youth. And I kid around, I grew up in the 50s. I didn't. I was actually born in late 1963. So I effectively really grew up in the 1970s and 80s. And you think about how important music was. It's the soundtrack of everybody's life to a certain extent. And for me, it was classic rock. I think I grew up mostly on Southern rock. Leonard Skinner, huge fan, Allman Brothers, Molly Hatchett. I can rattle off the names. But the band that sort of leapfrogged ahead of everybody. And I remember hearing Good Times, Bad Times. I want to say the first time I heard it was maybe 1976 or something at a party. I'm like, what is that? And this is an album that was probably released Zeppelin 1 in 1968 or 69. And immediately I was like, oh, my God, these guys are everything. And so I am above everything else a Led Zeppelin fan. Everything comes in second place. But in terms of music, and I know you guys can speak to this because you're both the same way. Music brings back memories that you hadn't thought of in years. You hear a song and you're literally immediately put back into a position from maybe middle school, elementary school, or clearly high school and college. And for me, that's a really great thing. So music is important. And I love to weave in lyrics whenever I can, not only on the tape, market call, but obviously on Fast Money as well. Guy, I find it ironic, since you've never seen The Big Short, to let you know that the theme song to the big short is when the levee breaks. And so I find, you know, all this destiny stuff between us. So we are kindred spirits, Danny Moses. I will tell you when we first met on the set of fast money, it's gotta be three and a half, four years ago or so. You probably know better than I do. And I think we immediately hit it off. You know, what's great. You get to a certain age in life where you don't think you're going to make new friends or meet people. But when I met you, I knew pretty quickly we were going to be very good friends. And that's really come to fruition. I knew the same with Dan, although Dan will tell a much different story. He will say what an asshole I was the first time we met or didn't really meet when he came on Fast Money the first time. But for me, it was like they would bring in this laundry list of people pretty much on a nightly basis. So I wasn't really invested in anybody in particular until Dan and I then met for the second time. Matter of fact, but we'll save that story for another episode of On the Tape. Well, Guy Adami, it has actually been an honor. I think you know this, building the brand that we have on the tape with Danny over the last year and a half. And it's really great. I think that our listeners have the opportunity to hear a little bit more of what makes you tick, Guy. And it might explain a whole heck of a lot. I don't know what makes me tick. I have a lot of fun. I'm 58 years old, but in some ways I feel like I've never left high school. I don't know if that's good or bad, but I'm re-energized by what the three of us have been doing together. And I think it's a lot of fun. And more importantly, not only do I think it's a lot of fun, but our listeners and our viewers think it's a lot of fun as well. And that's really important. It's resonating with people. I love that. And I love the fact that three of us have gotten to be such good friends, but not only the three of us, the people that you don't see. Amanda Diaz, our crack producer behind the scenes. We've reconnected with her after working with her for over 10 years at CNBC. So it's been a lot of fun. And you know what? As they say, as the line goes, the best is in fact yet to come. Yeah, guy, I feel the same way. Hope we can make it through these markets and extend this for many more years together. So, All right, guy, that was a lot of fun. We hope you come back on the tape. Thanks, bud. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.